the National Archives podcast series, The Post-Restoration Army, 1660-1714, presented by Ralph Thompson. For my presentation this afternoon, I intend to outline the emergence of a permanent standing army following the upheaval of the Civil War and its involvement in major foreign campaigns, focusing on the changing role, composition and development of the British military forces, I very much hope to highlight possible National Archives source material. My heading image is from the Blenheim Palace Tapestries, commemorating the Duke of Marlborough's resounding victory over Franco-Bavarian forces at Hochstadt in 1704 that saved Austria from conquest and the Allies from certain defeat, depicting a grenadier with captured colours, an artilleryman in the foreground, Blenheim, was the first time an English army had won a major European victory for almost 300 years. The politically articulate classes in Restoration England generally regarded standing armies as odious and were anxious to see the new model army disbanded. Charles II was allowed by Parliament to retain guards and garrisons as long as he paid for them. Although the royal purse was officially barren, Charles was generous to favourites and courtiers. The restoration of the House of Stuart had rested upon the constant unpopularity of the army and its programme of radical reform. The division of the Republican leaders, waning ideological fervour amongst the soldiery themselves, and the death of Oliver Cromwell, who alone sustained the interregnum for so long. The army produced the English Republic, maintained it and eventually destroyed it. Far from keeping the natural divisions in the army which gave to open at his death, Cromwell created by his constant policy of promoting men of different political and religious instincts simply on the strength of their relationship to himself. He ensured that power became concentrated in a network of relatives and favourites which only held together around his person. The briefly restored Commonwealth of May 1659 spared only Monk of his more conservative supporters, and that omission proved fatal. Fundamentally, many have argued that the restoration of 1660 did not happen because Cromwell had died, but because he had lived. Moreover, to the King in 1662, much of the settlement as advocated by the Cavalier Parliament was not a mandate to be obeyed, but a defeat to be avenged, whose implications were not finally laid to rest until the parliamentary legislation of 1688-89. While a large number of former Ironsides were turned out of military office in England, and Republican elements in support of the good old cause would remain a threat to the end of Charles's reign, the Cromwellian adventurers in Ireland were deemed necessary for preserving the Stuart regime and the harsh settlement against Catholic land ownership. In Scotland, military, military patronage was also an important source of support for the later Stuarts during the Restoration, but there was never enough officers in the Scots Army or the Scots regiments in the English Army to go around. The use of Highlanders against the Covenanters during the so-called killing times of the 1670s under the Duke of York was generally disruptive and unpopular. The English Parliament, fearing that James II in particular would employ the Scots army against them, 
or to help the French fight Protestants in mainland Europe. A large standing army was out of the question when Charles II returned to England in May 1660 after the interregnum that followed the wars of the three kingdoms. The memory of the rule of the major generals ensured that and many also remembered the undisciplined depredations of royalist armies during the civil wars, particularly the sack of Bolton and Leicester by the forces of Prince Rupert and the infamous plunderings of George Goring's horse in the West Country. As Roger Manning has observed, until the expansion of the army began during the Third Anglo-Dutch War of 1672-74, Charles II's army was adequate only for guarding his person and quelling minor popular disturbances. It certainly would not have been equal to repelling an invasion or deploying an expeditionary force. Its main reason for existence was to reward place-seekers and restless and unemployed soldiers. The significance of this small standing army is that it was the first time a British monarch had maintained field regiments in peacetime, though it was always referred to as the guards and garrisons rather than as the army to make it seem less of a political threat. Officers were usually younger sons of the nobility and gentry. These largely tended to be royalists who followed the king into exile, or the sons of those who had fought for Charles I in the civil wars. Many, like Marlborough's own father, Sir Winston, were impoverished through parliamentary sequestrations. Here we have a portrait of Marlborough from the 1690s. John Churchill, as Queen Anne's Captain General, was undoubtedly the most famous English soldier before the Anglo-Irish Duke of Wellington a century later. The troopers in the regiments of horse guards were recruited from the poorer gentry. The lifeguards in particular was a stepping stone to greater things. Only the lifeguards private gentlemen were considered well off with four shillings a day a reflection of their higher social status. Four shillings being about £16 in today's terms. Many reformados, former wartime officers, were unable to secure commissions in the new armies of the three kingdoms and instead sought places in the ranks of the guards regiments. In accommodating them as troopers, they were paid considerably more than private soldiers in regiments of foot and to prevent their officers from exploiting them, the sale of promotions in the enlisted ranks was prohibited. My first document is taken from WO55 Entry Books of Orders, 1660, formation of the Grenadier Guards under Colonel John Russell as part of the Restoration Settlement. Russell had been a leading wartime royalist, a prominent officer of the Oxford Horse in Prince Rupert's Blues. The experience of the ordinary soldier was very different. Given the harsh conditions, cashiering for both swearing and drinking, all soldiers enlisted for life, with very occasional discharges granted for sickness or disability. Inevitably, most recruits volunteered out of desperation. Typically, they were unemployed apprentices and journeymen. Criminals avoiding arrest and debtors also saw the military as a safe haven. The reality of life for the other ranks was, quote, dirty, depraved, and despised. A line infantryman 
received only eight pence per day under three pounds, tuppence less than the guards. From this was deducted daily off reckonings of tuppence to meet the cost of uniforms and accoutrements. This left subsistence money for food and lodgings. A soldier was lucky to clear five pence a day. It was not enough to live on except on campaign when accommodation and bread were provided. With little or no spare cash, soldiers were often unruly, refused to pay for their quarters, and behaved little better than armed thugs. As Saul David has argued, many officers failed to act, partly because they sympathised with their soldiers' predicament, and partly because they lacked the disciplinary power to punish them effectively until the passing of the Mutiny Act in 1689. Private soldiers of standing regiments could, however, enter as in-pensioners into the Royal Hospital Chelsea or Kilmainham on the Irish establishment, founded in 1679 and 1681 respectively. Although our pensions for lower ranks were fairly rare in this period, former officers themselves were reliant on memorial petitioning for monetary support. Our pensioners would be formed into invalid, veteran and garrison companies for duties in wartime. Invalid out pensioner companies being comprised of partially disabled troops under the ordnance rather than the war office like the rest of the army. Organisation of the British Army into the 18th century. For the Redcoats, the Army of the Glorious Revolution was a major turning point. Henceforth, they would no longer serve as the coercive power of an individual monarch, though they would continue to be known as raw troops and their officers would still receive their commissions from the sovereign, but rather as the constitutionally established security force of England and later of Britain, or at least her representatives in Parliament. To control the powers of the monarch, Parliament had passed the Bill of Rights in 1689, to prevent a standing army in peacetime without the consent of the narrowly enfranchised political nation. William III's key advisor in carrying out the restructuring of 1689 was John Churchill, whereby all Catholics, Jacobites and those considered to be politically unreliable were stripped of their commissions. William was naturally suspicious of those like Churchill himself who had switched masters, i.e. from James II, feeling keenly that no English politician or soldier was to be fully trusted, having a shortage of Dutchmen and Germans to officer the new regiments of the English army. Yet, within two decades of William's accession, the French aura of invincibility would be shattered. Ironically, Marlborough would maintain secret correspondence with the émigré Jacobite court until the end of his life. As another measure to avoid a dangerous concentration of power in the hands of any one person, responsibility for the various branches of the army and its administration were deliberately assigned to various high officials. Ultimately, the main bodies responsible for the army were to be the War Office, only properly established in 1704, responsible for day-to-day -day administration of the army. Emerging from the King's Council of War, the post of Secretary at War was, however, 
a fairly minor government position which dealt with the minutiae of administration rather than grand strategy. Issues of strategic policy during wartime were managed by the ministers of the northern and southern departments, the latter being the more powerful, dealing with the prestigious European Catholic powers. The Board of Ordnance, created in 1597, responsible for the supply of weapons and ammunition, would later administer the Royal Artillery and Royal Engineers, and the Commissariat Department. Although only established in 1793, its origins going back to the Civil War, subordinate to the Treasury rather than the War Office. It occasionally raised its own fighting units, such as bateaumen, armed watermen and pioneers for North America. My next document is taken from SP 42, State Papers Naval. 1711, lack of assistance, difficulties in attacking Quebec. This dispatch relates to General Hill's disastrous amphibious expedition against New France, where eight transports were wrecked and hundreds of soldiers drowned in the St. Lawrence. Jack Hill's rapid rise, becoming Lieutenant General of Ordnance by 1712, owed little to military talent. While partly brought about through the patronage of Marlborough, it was increasingly due to the ascent of his sister Abigail, the Tory Lady Masham, who displaced her cousin, the Whig Sarah Churchill, as Queen Anne's favourite. Ultimately, if the Quebec enterprise had been successful, French rule in North America would have ended in 1711 as opposed to 1763. None of the aforementioned bodies were usually represented in the cabinet, nor were they responsible for the overall strategy, which was in the hands of the Secretary of State for War. Such figures as Matthew Locke, Viscount Bolingbroke and Robert Walpole would serve in this high office between 1666 and 1710. In the field, a commander's staff consisted of an adjutant general who handled finance, troop returns, and legal matters, and a quartermaster general who was responsible for billeting and organizing movements. These conflicting lines of bureaucratic responsibility often caused logistical problems. The 18th century position of Paymaster General was a byword for its opportunities for corruption and several Paymaster Generals made themselves fortunes during the early part of the century. However, Marlborough would take with him closely guarded coffers of gold, known collectively as the military chest, to ensure his men received their wages in full, the coffers being guarantors of goodwill and fine order during the march. Here we have a map of Marlborough's campaigns between 1701 and 1711, which includes the line of his celebrated march to the Danube in 1704. While British involvement in the War of the Spanish Succession met its greatest successes in the Low Countries and Germany, aside from North America, other theatres of war included the Italian states and the Iberian Peninsula. French forces 
under the able generalship of James II's illegitimate son and Marlborough's own nephew, the Duke of Berwick, were more successful in Spain. The Earl of Galway's, the Huguenot de Rovni's Anglo-Portuguese army being decisively beaten at Almanza in 1707. TNA, the other records, <coughs> principal sources that can be consulted here. Initially, state papers online for the whole period up to the death of Queen Anne in 1714 and colonial state papers ending in 1739. Both websites are free to view at the National Archives. W055, Entry Books of Orders and Warrants in Council, which actually date from 1568. For example, W055, Piece 330, Equipment of the Duke of Albemarle's Monk's Regiment, 1661. One of the few regiments of foot not to be disbanded at the Restoration. General Monk's march from the border had secured London for the Rump Parliament, effectively neutralising Republican resistance to the Stuarts. W.O. 24, Military Establishments from 1661, covers guards, garrisons and land forces. Covering Scotland, Ireland and Flanders, it's very useful as it also lists foreign troops in English service. W.O. 25, Commissioning Books, registers date from 1660. Pieces 2 to 5 relate to 1685 to 90, for example. The commissioning of officers by purchase only ending with the late Victorian army reforms. W.O. 26, entry books, warrants from 1670 onwards. For example, W.O. 26, piece 3, concerns unruly artisans on the notorious Thames South Bank, 1675. Coldstream Guards, suppression of hatters and weavers in Lambeth, signed by Monmouth himself when honorary colonel of the regiment. And we see his signature here on the bottom right. SPA, King William's Chest. Really a key series for the earlier period, containing both William of Orange's private and public papers for the years 1670 to 1698, it's an excellent source for material on the Nine Years' War against France. For example, the collection terminates with a piece of Reisvik, which it partly documents. The Treaty of Reisvik of the 20th of September 1697, ending the indecisive war of the Grand Alliance. Here we have an example from SPA, account of the victory over the Irish army at Drogheda, River Boyne, 1690. To continue, W04, Secretary at War, military art letters dating from 1684. For example, W04, Peace 1, the taking of the Duke of Monmouth and Lord Grey of Wark by the Dorsetshire militia in his flight to Sussex, 1685. W05, Marching Orders, which date from 1683. These can be very useful for the period of the Glorious Revolution, relating to the collapse of James II's field army on Salisbury Plain and Hounslow Heath, or the disposition of regiments for the Jacobite Wars in Scotland and Ireland, for instance. 
Ordnance Office, W.O. 44, Original Correspondence from 1682, W.O. 47, Entry Books of Minutes, Reports and Orders from 1644. To continue, E101, King's Remembrancer, Army, Accounts Various to 1858. E134, Depositions Taken by Commission, includes the financial effects of quartering troops on the local community between 1650 and 1680. CO5, America and West Indies, original correspondence from 1606. This can be a good source for campaigns in North America itself as it contains dispatches from individual colonies. SP78, State Papers France, dating from 1577. Includes in letters from Versailles and dispatches from English consuls and agents. SP87, State Papers Foreign, military expeditions dating from 1695. Pieces two to three relate to Marlborough's campaign letters from the Low Countries and the German electoral states, while piece four are those of his subordinate, William Cadogan, the Quartermaster General. And finally, WO30, miscellaneous papers dating from 1684. For example, WO30, piece 89. Formation in Flanders of two battalions from deserters from the French army, 1711. While France was economically exhausted by this date, I can only suppose these might include a percentage of secret Huguenots, as this was the exact time of the Camisade War in the mountains of the Cévennes. And here we have a map from WO78, Military Maps and Plans showing the Battle of Tasnia fought between French forces and the British September 1709. Melbourne near Mons was the hardest fought of all Marlborough's victories, the Allies losing more men than at Blenheim, Ramillies and Oudenard combined. France would initially claim victory, at the very least settling for a draw. The Fighting Huguenots French soldiers. After the Glorious Revolution, the Huguenots came to form a separate enclave within the British Armed Forces, possessing their own distinct regiments as well as contributing a considerable number of officers to other formations. Five Huguenot regiments were created during King William's reign. John Child's suggestion that between 10 and 15% of the British officer corps was actually French Protestant by 1700 would not seem unduly high. As a figure of 3,000 Huguenot officers is estimated to have quitted Louis XIV's service after 1685. Relatively few Huguenots from the lower social orders succeeded in escaping from France after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Indeed, Roman Catholics were very often found in the ranks of these Huguenot officered formations, like Cambon's and Kelmott's regiments, which served in Ireland and Flanders and acted as a magnet for French deserters. William of Orange had a very high regard for these Huguenot regiments. 
This admiration, however, did not extend to the native British officers and men. They were seen as favoured foreigners, and there was initially a good deal of jealousy towards them, as illustrated by the fact that French units were pushed to the back with the largest arrears of pay. Over 200 officers alone were discharged after the Disarming Act of 1699 and given permission to sail for Holland. However, many second-generation Huguenots would continue to serve into the following century. And such names as Le Jeunier and De Jean, for example, would long be associated with the British military. The composition of later Stuart armies, the baggage train. All 17th century armies travelled with a baggage train, the logistical support of the marching troops. Under the command of the wagon master, it largely consisted of servants and retainers of officers, tradesmen such as armourers, farriers and blacksmiths, and middling sort, like army sutlers who sold provisions to the army in the field, camp or garrison courses. Below them would be the soldiers' wives and families who followed the army and were accordingly subject to the same harsh discipline. Soldiers' wives very often cooked, sewed and acted as laundresses in camp to substitute their income and accompanied their husbands on campaign. They were often joined by a similar number of unofficial wives who were off strength and had to fend for themselves. While most colonels originally restricted the number of wives to six per company of a hundred soldiers, they were allowed to sleep in quarters with their children. Although soldiers were not generally encouraged to marry, married quarters weren't provided until after the Crimean War. Moreover, there were many contemporary accounts of whole communities of itinerant camp followers attached to English armies on the continent in this period, particularly during the wars against Louis XIV, such as the Williamite War of the Grand Alliance. The foot, pikemen. While the pike can be traced back to the Macedonian phalanx of antiquity, it played a considerable role in Bruce's victory at Bannockburn in 1314. It was only generally adopted by European armies at the end of the 15th century. By the Civil War, pikemen were armed with an 18-foot tapered shaft with an iron spearhead affixed. Although long in theory, it was often shorter in practice. The use of half-pikes in close quarter fighting or in naval engagements was very common. Essentially, pikemen were employed to protect the musketeers from cavalry troopers when reloading. At the beginning of the 17th century, Pikemen wore a rimmed helmet, the pikeman's pot, back and breastplate, and fire armour or tassets. But armour was rapidly discarded as the century went on. The pikemen of the new model army seemed not to have worn body armour, and Sir James Turner reported in 1671 that, quote, pikemen were naked, i.e., unarmoured, save everywhere except in the Netherlands. And here we have a print, a contemporary print of pikemen from the 1660s. While the pike was regarded as the more honourable weapon than the musket, the proportion of pike to musketeers shrank steadily. In the early Stuart period, there were perhaps two pikemen to one caliver man, a caliver being a heavy musket that was used with the rest. 
This ratio was by the 1640s reversed, and by 1691, regiments that left Ireland for Flanders had only 14 pikemen per company, less than a quarter of their strength. Although the pike was effectively rendered redundant by the invention of the bayonet, which in effect made every musketeer his own pikeman, it lingered on into the 18th century and was retained by Russian and especially Swedish armies. Charles XII particularly made effective use of the pike during the Great Northern War. Here we have a very late example of the issue of pikes from SP 41, State Papers Military. This relates to a warrant from George I for the issue of short, i.e. half-pikes, to the invalid companies in the garrison at Portsmouth. From September 1715, the time of the Old Pretenders Jacobite uprising in Scotland. Musketeers. Musketeers were initially armed with the older style matchlocks. Slowly, these were replaced by flintlocks, which had been known as snap-ounces or doglocks during the 1640s. Flintlocks were generally adopted by the 1680s, as were plug bayonets, which had originated in France the previous decade. However, musketeers were unable to fire when using the plug, and British infantrymen, to use the term after the Act of Union in 1707, only became truly efficient with the complete standardisation of the socket bayonet by 1720. Musketeers were thus equipped with bandoliers of powder charges, fine priming flasks, and shot bags of ball, wadding, flints and steel. Here we have another example from SP 41. This document from November 1704 refers to the 3,000 plug bayonets held by the Ordnance Board but completely lacked socket bayonets to issue during the Siege of Gibraltar. Specialist troops. Specialist foot troops like grenadiers and fusiliers increasingly emerged during the period of the early lace wars. Foot grenadiers, along with horse grenadiers, were first established as a distinct role in the mid to late 17th century for the throwing of grenados and sometimes for assault operations. At this time, grenadiers, having originally been raised as a result of the Sun King's military legislation, which under his energetic Minister of War, Louvois, had made the French army the most feared in Europe, were chosen from the strongest and the largest soldiers, often leading the storming of breaches in siege warfare. Although this role was more usually filled by mixed units of volunteers, known as the Forlorn Hope, or by sappers, i.e. miners and pioneers. Here we have a print of an early grenadier from the 1670s getting ready to hurl his grenado. Wide hats with broad brims, characteristic of the infantry during the late 17th century, were eventually discarded and replaced by caps. This was originally to allow the grenadier to sling his musket over his back with greater ease when hurling grenades. By 1700, English grenadiers had adopted a cap in the style of a bishop's mitre. Usually decorated with regimental insignia, this becoming the distinguishing feature for all grenadiers 
by Queen Anne's reign. Here we have a picture of mixed foot soldiers from the 1680s, musketeers and grenadiers from the time of Sedge Moor, the last set-piece battle on English soil. Both the musketeer and the grenadier have plugged bayonets. The musketeer has a bandolier of powder bottles. These would soon be replaced by cartridge belly boxes. The adoption and continuing use of red by most English soldiers after the 1660s was the result of circumstances rather than policy, including the relative cheapness of red, crimson or russet dyes. Red was by no means universal at first, with grey and blue coats being worn. The former echoing New Model Army units, the latter associated with William of Orange's Dutch Guards. While Grenadiers were regarded as an elite fighting force, their usage declined during the War of Spanish Succession, a fact that can be attributed to improved infantry line tactics and flintlock technology. However, the need for shock troops remained, and existing Grenadier companies were retained for this function. Sea fighting troops served a similar purpose and played an important role in the mercantile wars against the Dutch Republic and the Spanish Empire. The Royal Marines formed in regiments under individual officers, having been founded in 1664 by the future James II when Lord High Admiral would only be incorporated into the Royal Navy from the 1790s. The most historic achievements of these early naval regiments were their significant role in the Battle of Sol Bay during the Second Dutch War in 1667 and in their capture of the Mole during the assault on Gibraltar in 1704. Specialised forces of rangers served in the 17th and 18th century North American wars between the colonists and Native American tribes. Colonel Benjamin Church was captain of the first ranger force in America. Raising a company during King Philip's war against the New England Wampanoag in 1676, he later employed ranger companies to raid French Acadia during King William's war and Queen Anne's war, respectively the first and second French and Indian wars. However, the British colonial rangers were generally outmatched by the French-Canadian Cour de Bois and their Algonquin allies in woodland survival skills. As a forerunner to the more famous Robert Rogers in the 1750s and Gorham's Rangers during King George's War of the 1740s, Church developed a special full-time unit mixing colonists selected for frontier experience with friendly Native Americans, such as, as the Mohawks, and other Iroquoian peoples to carry out offensive strikes against hostile tribes such as the Abenaki of Maine and the Micmacs of Nova Scotia, for example, in terrain where British regulars or normal militia units were ineffective. And here we have a document from WO55, which refers to the 1697 expedition to Newfoundland to protect the colony from the French and their Indian allies. However, Colonel John Gibson arrived too late as the settlement was entirely destroyed. The settlers all but wiped out with 224 survivors being removed from the colony in a French warship. 
the artillery. Before the 18th century, artillery trains were raised by raw warrant for specific campaigns and disbanded once they were over. Consequently, many heavy guns like Calvarins or Sakers were often lost or abandoned to the enemy when the army was forced to retire, particularly the slow-moving sieges which dominated warfare in the Low Countries. My next document is from SP 87, July the 18th, 1695. Death by cannon shot before Namur of Mr. Michael Godfrey, Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, War of the League of Augsburg. The Bank of England, only being established the previous year, the long drawn out siege of Namur, southern Netherlands, lasted over two years before the Allies finally captured this important Bourbon stronghold. Fusiliers provided military escorts for the artillery and kept order amongst the civilian drivers. Founded in 1685 as an Ordnance Regiment, the Royal Fusiliers of the City of London Regiment, they were armed with the most up-to-date weapon of the day, the fusil musket, which was ultimately safe to use around barrels of powder. While pioneer contingents were attached to artillery units after 1660, the Board of Ordnance only established a Corps of Engineers in 1717. The combining of shot and powder into single-shell projectiles had been developed under the early Stuarts, as had specialised pieces of shipboard artillery and mortars, for example. One of the most significant effects of artillery during this time was the abandonment of old siege warfare strategies and styles of fortification building. This resulted in the construction of new bastion-style fortresses which projected outwards from the main enclosure, facilitating active defence against assault troops. William III's military engineer, Menno van Kurhun, and especially Sebastian Lepres de Verboin, Louis XIV's siege master general, were the foremost fortifications experts of their age. Vauban is considered to have taken the Star Fortress to its logical extreme, incorporating redoubts, crown works and counterscarps, popularising the concept of depth in defence. Vauban built 33 forts and fortified walled towns, strengthening 300 others from Spanish Flanders, the Pas de Calais, to the coasts and borders of France. Vauban moreover introduced a more systematic and scientific approach to attacking gunpowder fortresses. Careful sapping forwards, supported by covering fire, was a key feature of this system and even allowed him to calculate the length of a siege. Here we have a print of the Star Fort at Hunningen on the Rhine, circa 1702, a Vorbanic defensive masterpiece. Vorban built fortifications as far apart as the Pyrenees and northern Italy, even testing out his own constructions during the bombardment of Brest. Artillerymen themselves were technically the most competent and highly rewarded component of English armies in the Lace Wars period, being schooled in the liberal arts of mathematics and geometry. Very often, foreign professionals like Dutch, Scandinavian and French Huguenots proliferating after the 1680s. 
Such titles as Master Gunner and Fireworker Petardier, Petard being a bomb, prevailing during the later 17th century. The decision to form a permanent body of artillery was only largely made as a result of the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715. Marlborough's great convoy required 16,000 horses to draw 80 heavy guns, 20 siege mortars and 3,000 assorted munitions and stores wagons and took up 30 miles of road. Marshal Tallard, his opponent at Blenheim, and interestingly the man who popularised the eating of celery whilst held prisoner in England, would need eight days to move the 6,000 wagons of his artillery train through the relatively short passes of the Black Forest in July 1704. Marlborough's convoy of 1708, during the Malplaquet campaign on the other hand, was able to cover 12 miles in a single day. The horse. The cavalrymen of the Restoration period were equipped as cuirassiers with armour on the head and body. The regulations of Charles II in 1663 provided for them to be armed with, quote, a sword and case of pistols, each trooper of the guard to have a carbine besides. Deriving from the earlier term of Harcourt-Bassier, a more wealthy horseman would have worn a fine quality hide buff coat which was three-quarter length by the 1680s and very often more expensive than the iron cuirass and the ce celebrated Civil War style lobster pot helmet known as a zigzag in Central Europe. The trooper was armed with a doglock carbine, i.e. short musket, hung from a swivel attached to a crossbelt baldric, pistols in saddle holsters and a straight-bladed hanger or so-called mortuary sword. Here we have a trooper's equipment from the 1660s consisting of lobster helm, buff coat, carbine and powder flask. The term harquebusier fell out gradually and many British cavalry regiments having their origins as harquebusiers eventually transformed into dragoons. The cavalry's equipment disappearing at different rates. The doglock carbine replaced by the true flintlock by 1700, while the lobster-tailed helmet fell out of favour in Britain at about the same time, although it was retained by Habsburg Austria on its eastern frontier into the 1780s. In the 18th century, cavalry were trained to use shock action, very much echoing the Ironsides of the Eastern Association. Charging home with sword, firing pistols only in the melee and using the fire of the artillerymen and musketry to shield them. Incredibly, Marlborough was reported to allow his horsemen only three charges of powder and ball per campaign and those only for guarding their mounts. By the latter 17th century, cavalry had become more diverse as dragoons became more prestigious riding lighter horses. Equipped with short arms, they initially fought on foot behind hedges and trees. The word dragoon originally meant mounted infantry who were trained in horse riding as well as infantry fighting skills. However, usage altered over time, and by the 18th century, dragoons were evolving 
into conventional light cavalry units, dragoon regiments being established in most European armies. The term very much associated with Louis XIV's persecution of French Protestants, the period of the Dragonards and the coercion of the Huguenots. Early dragoons were not organised in squadrons or troops as were cavalry, but in companies like infantry. Their officers and non-commissioned officers bore infantry ranks. Dragoon regiments using drummers, not trumpeters, to communicate battlefield orders. The flexibility of mounted infantry made dragoons a useful arm, especially when employed for internal security against smugglers or for civil unrest. Lastly, we have a picture of early 18th century dragoons around the end of the War of Spanish Succession. We see the soldier on the right, now equipped with a cartouche belly box. Recruits to dragoon regiments had tended to come from yeoman stock and were neither gentlemen or paupers. When in the field with their mounts, they were counted as a regiment of horse with precedence over all foot soldiers. Dragoons were supplied with inferior horses or nags and more basically equipped. Dragoon regiments were cheaper to recruit and maintain than expensive heavy cavalry. However, dragoons were also at a disadvantage when engaged against true cavalry and constantly sought to improve their horsemanship, armaments and social status. The British Army over the course of the 18th century would gradually demote all horse regiments to dragoons to reduce the military budget. Warlike cavalry hussars were increasingly used in European armies as they were adept at scouting and screening. They also seemed to have had a bad reputation. One French officer calling them, quote, nothing but bandits on horseback. The very word hussar in Hungarian meaning freebooter or raider. Although upstaged by the practical superiority of the Royal Navy, where merit and ability took precedence over privilege and patronage and the hostility of Westminster, the British Army would gain increasing prestige and martial glory over the long 18th century. As a consequence of almost continuous campaigning between 1689 and 1713, they had become highly proficient in battle. Moving away from the age of the contract mercenary commander, the army, the army would become a truly professionalised institution by the time of Queen Anne's death. War is no longer an accident, but a trade. And they that will be anything in it must serve a long apprenticeship to it. Human wit and industry has raised it to such a perfection, it requires people to make it their whole employment. Daniel Defoe, a brief reply to the history of standing armies in England, 1698, unquote. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 14th of March, 2013, at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.